Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 19, The Comet Burns the West. Now, I'm going to start today by discussing a main point of controversy about Tsar Samuil before jumping back into the actual narrative. Now, you're maybe wondering what controversy could there be about Tsar Samuil, someone who lived over a thousand years ago? Well, there is a question as to whether the state he governed and whether he himself was Bulgarian or Macedonian. Now, before I even get into this, I need a disclaimer. Now, the subject I'm about to discuss is controversial amongst, well, uh, the kinds of people who like leaving angry comments on YouTube videos. Let's just put it that way. So no matter how I discuss it, it's going to make some people extremely angry. But I hope you'll believe me and uh, give me credit that what follows is my very honest assessment of the history as well as a bit of the current politics around this issue. Now, getting into things, this controversy doesn't have its origins in the 10th century, as you might expect. In fact, this is a purely 20th century debate. It has its origins in politically motivated historical projections designed to emphasize the uniqueness and the historical roots of Macedonia as a state and an idea, mostly following the Second World War. So once Macedonia became a federal state within Yugoslavia, uh, that state had to work to justify its existence and its uniqueness relative to its neighbors. Now, this is something we're going to discuss in far greater detail when we get to the 20th century, obviously, uh, but you can get some of the basic ideas here. Now, any state needs to develop some national identity, some justification for its existence, right? If Macedonia exists, why is it not part of anyone else? Why is there a state called Macedonia? Every state needs to have some argument for why it should be. Now, states do this in part by encouraging national identities, uh, encouraging for its people, encouraging its people to be more dedicated to the state, encouraging its people to be willing to sacrifice for the state. And one small part of building this identity is with history, of course. So, in the case of Macedonia. This was done in part by connecting the geographic name of the territory with the name of the Federal Republic, and of course tying this back to older states, most famously uh, that of Alexander the Great. So this is one of the most basic ways for a state to justify its existence. You know, we existed before, we have history, therefore we can and should exist now. So Macedonia does this, so before I get too harsh on Macedonia, most countries do this. I mean, Bulgaria, for example, takes immense pride in some of the, the Neolithic uh, kind of artifacts you find here, even in the Thracians. But as we talked about before, modern Bulgarians don't have very much of a connection to these people, minus the fact that they live in the same place. So a huge, huge number of countries do this, right? Macedonia just sort of maybe does it a bit more and they take it to the next level and they do it in such a way which angers their neighbors, you know? So if Bulgaria claims a, sort of a, a Thracian past, uh, claims the legacy of Thrace, no one really is angry about this. However, obviously, if Macedonia claims the legacy of Alexander the Great, a great many people, mostly Greeks, are furious about this. So, Jumping back to Samuel and getting into the details. Now, you'll recall at the end of the last episode 
the eastern portion of Bulgaria was taken over first by the Kievan Rus and then by the Byzantines. Now, the old uh, head of the first Bulgarian Empire, the uh, old capital Pliska, the newer one Preslav, they were all absorbed into the Byzantine Empire. However, the western territories of the first Bulgarian Empire, the ones that were conquered more recently, right, in the last maybe 200 years, uh, where, where the modern state of Macedonia and a bit of Albania, etc. are, uh, those were not conquered. And in fact, they were mostly ignored. You know, obviously, all the main stuff was uh, was over in the east, or sorry, yeah, in the east, and this is closer to the Byzantines. That's what they cared about. So, yeah, the other territories are more remote and, uh, yeah, just neglected. So that brings us to the reason why modern historians and politicians in Macedonia characterize this, we can call it rump Bulgaria, uh, as a new Macedonian state. So their argument is that at this point in history, the Bulgarian Empire, the first one, ceases to exist, and that a new empire arises, which is a Macedonian empire. So this is part because it's based on the geographic territory of Macedonia. It's really centered here. Um, and to add to this, they also claim that the official language of the state was Macedonian, its population was Macedonian, and that its leader, Samuil, uh, was Macedonian. So there are several problems here. To start off with the labeling of the state. Now, the rulers of the state in question continued referring to themselves as Bulgaria, as Bulgarians. And they continued to rule in name, uh, in name only by Tsar Roman. So Roman continues to be the leader of this new state. And they use the same names for themselves. So at no point does the state overtly change its name or overtly change its identity. There's no clear break here. Again, the, these, most of these Macedonian historians characterize the break as when Tsar Samuel kind of takes over, but Tsar Samuel wouldn't have made this distinction himself. However, it is true that this uh, Bulgarian state was substantially different from what existed prior to being subjugated by the Kievan Rus uh, and the Byzantines. So therefore, you could arguably differentiate it by calling it something like the Western Bulgarian Empire, or even the Macedonian Bulgarian Empire. Uh, each of these names reflects the geographic basis of the state, while including the label of Bulgarian Empire reflecting its self-identification. You know, Western or uh, Macedonian both work well for this. Now, as for the linguistic or ethnic labels, Macedonian, uh, these are more problematic, in fact, than the, the geographic issue. First, because they reflect the application of notions of ethnicity that were developed in the, 19th in, uh, in the 19th century. And they take those ideas and just kind of stick them into the 10th century. Now, granted, this is something, again, a lot of countries do, a lot of historians do, a lot of people do. We, we like to pretend that our 19th and 20th century notion of uh, national and ethnic identity has always existed, wherein whereas it really, really hasn't. Uh, again, something I'll go into much more detail uh, later in the podcast about. Um, but essentially, yeah, taking this and adding in there and claiming these people had some sort of a holistic identity as Macedonian is a bit absurd. But claiming that they all kind of would have immediately said, yes, we are Bulgarians, is also not quite true. Uh, in any empire around the world these days, you know, people would have probably been aware that they're in an empire. But to say that they would have had some ethnic or national identity with that empire, maybe sometimes, maybe not. It's, it's a little hard. You know, you can't interview them. There's not a lot of primary sources written by peasants, but it's a bit dubious. However, you know, using, again, the name of the state as it 
you know, referred to itself is generally the best way to go. Now, as for the language, this is another example. So I'm not a linguist, you know, it's not my training. Uh, I don't have any detailed information about the language of this era, um, but pretending as if there are clear and distinctive lines at this point, dividing languages into Bulgarian and Macedonian is a bit absurd because none of the contemporary sources talk about that. Now, there is an evolving Bulgarian language, right? We talked about uh, the creation of the uh, Glagolitsa, the Glagolitic, Glagolitic alphabet. We talked about the creation of the Cyrillic alphabet. We know at this point we have Old Church Slavonic. You know, this is an existing language. And essentially what you're likely having at this point in terms of language is this Old Church Slavonic, which would be what sort of priests, any, anyone very well educated can speak. You're going to have, we think Proto-Bulgarian is probably more or less gone by this point. And for everyone else living in the area, some version of a Slavic dialect. So yes, in truth, the people in the part of Bulgaria that was conquered and the people in the unconquered part of Bulgaria, yeah, they're probably going to be speaking slightly different Slavic dialects as people in any state, once you travel a certain distance, you know, their dialects, what they're going to be saying is going to change a bit. But Simply drawing a clean line and, and labeling it, I don't see enough reason to do that. And again, that self-identification, which is pretty important, is, is really not there. Uh, so the same actually goes for retroactively applying uh, a label on a people who wouldn't have used it themselves. I've been mentioning this. Now, sometimes this is justified for the sake of clarity. Uh, so the best example here is the Byzantines. If you had you know, gone back in time in a time machine and talked about uh, the Byzantines, no one would have a clue what you were talking about because the people of Constantinople, the people of this empire, would have generally referred to themselves as Roman and that they were the Roman Empire. Uh, they had no word for this Byzantine. This is taken, this is, I believe, if I recall off the top of my head, a 19th century kind of invented label, which took um, the old name of where Constantinople is now, uh, took the name of the city that used to be there, and applied it to the empire for the sake of clarity, so we can distinguish it from the Roman Empire. So occasionally, yes, we, we call people what they would not have called themselves, but to do this requires a, a real justification. And with the Macedonian-Bulgarian thing, I don't think we have a reason to, to change what we're calling these people. And kind of lastly, uh, Samuel himself. To call him kind of ethnically Macedonian is a bit strange to me because true, he was kind of from this region, was born in that region, but he's actually of Armenian origin and again would have identified as the leader of a Bulgarian state. So on that Armenian origin, this is going to become uh, interesting later, he was actually the grandson of King Ashot II of Armenia. Pretty cool, right? So the grandson of an Armenian king is about to become the Tsar of Bulgaria. So taking the leader of a self-titled Bulgarian empire, who is of Armenian origin, and labeling him Macedonian uh, just doesn't square for me. All right, so to conclude this section, based on what I've been kind of outlying, simply referring to the state Samuel will lead as Bulgaria and its people Bulgarians is the easiest way to go. That's just how I'm going to refer to it. But bear in mind that it is something I think about, something you should think about. All right, so enough of, uh, you know, me kind of going back into my, my nationalism studies program. We're back to the narrative now. So we left off last time with the death of Tsar Boris II. The Byzantines, if you'll recall, hoped that sending the Tsar and his brother Roman to what remained of the Bulgarian Empire would prompt a civil war between them and the four Komitopoli brothers who were ruling in their absence. 
Now, again, this wasn't an unreasonable assumption. By the time Rahman arrived in 977, a lot had already happened. Following the full takeover of the eastern portion of Bulgaria by Sviatoslav and the Kievan Rus since uh, 969, and the subsequent defeat by the Byzantines, after which Boris II was stripped of his titles, the four Komitopoli brothers stepped up and took control of what remained unconquered. So to quickly go over what had happened by the time Roman managed to return, because I kind of skipped over this before and I want to fill in that gap. So these four brothers each governed a region within the rump Bulgaria, what was left. First, David, the eldest son, he commanded the southern frontier with the Byzantines, centered around Thessalonica and Thessaly, you know, modern, the modern northern part of Greece. The second son, Moses, controlled the southeast and Aegean coast uh, from the Strumitsa, which is uh, another town from Strumitsa. Now, the third son, Aaron, governed Sredets, which was the name of Sofia at the time. So he was sort of ruling from where we are right now. And this controlled vital trade routes and allowed him to raid Byzantine territory pretty easily. And finally, the youngest son, Samuel, was based in Vidin on the Danube, which is still there. There's a big fortress there. I have not visited yet, but it is high on my list of places I really need to get to. So from Vidin, Samuel also raided Byzantine holdings north of the Balkan Mountains, you know, territory they had just taken from Bulgaria. Now, this state was trying to establish itself. In 973, the brothers sent an envoy to Otto I, the sitting Holy Roman Emperor, to seek some support and protection against the Byzantines. So even before the Byzantines began to attack, these brothers are thinking, okay, where can we find allies? How can we establish ourselves as a legitimate state? Now, unfortunately for them, their timing was quite bad. Uh, when their envoys got there, the emperor was on the brink of death, and this is not exactly the best time to make alliances and things, so that came to nothing. But again, it did show that these brothers were ruling a real state that had real political ambitions. So for the moment, things were relatively quiet. The Komitopoli brothers were establishing themselves, doing some raids, and the Byzantines honestly didn't really realize they were there, didn't care very much. They obviously had much more on their plate. The only major imperial activity was the usual settlement of non-Slavs in the newly conquered territories in an attempt to make them more Byzantine and more docile. So they're sending some Armenians and various peoples from the rest of the empire to settle the part of Bulgaria that had just been conquered. Now this changed in 976 when Emperor John Tzimikses, I might have messed up his last name, I'm not sure about the Greek pronunciation, but John, finally died. The Komatopoli brothers took this as an opportunity to launch massive raids along the border. Obviously, there's, you know, that moment, the transition, no one's quite in charge, everyone's figuring out who's going to be the next emperor, it's a good time to attack. Well, things got ugly quickly. The eldest son, David, was killed by Vlax, who was a kind of, they were a kind of semi-nomadic group of probably Romanized Illyrians. Uh, once we get laid in the podcast, I'll mention them more, but they still exist today. This is still a, an ethnic group spread throughout the Balkans. Moses... The, other, the next oldest brother, was laying siege to Ceres, another city in uh, Greece, and was allegedly killed by a stone thrown by a defender of the city. Somehow, I guess, hit him in the head, and that was that. The next son, Aaron, well, he wasn't very interested in power, and so he just sort of decided it was uh, time to allow Samuel to step up and rule. 
know, he was older than Samuel, but he let Samuel do what he liked. So very quickly in this period of raids, the two eldest brothers die. The next two youngest brothers sort of arrange a, a power sharing between them. Now, at this point, Roman is still Tsar in name, but Samuel's power seems to be more or less unquestioned by the late 970s. Uh, Runciman uh, believes that he probably even had the title of Tsar by around 980. So again, it's sort of a, a decade-long process of this transition between Samuel just sort of being something like the prime minister while Roman is the actual Tsar to it being very clear that uh, Samuel is running the things to him actually getting the title. Now, during this period, of course, uh, John gets replaced by a new emperor, as happens. This new emperor is Basil II. You'll want to remember that name. He is very important. And we're going to be seeing him for a while. Now, Basil had major problems on his hand and at the time couldn't be bothered much to worry about the West and the Bulgarians out there. A rebellion in the Byzantine Empire's eastern provinces and plenty of plots against his life meant that he was very occupied for the first several years of his reign. In the meantime, Samuel gradually pushed his border westward, eventually getting it to somewhere between modern Sofia and Plovdiv. So if you look at a map, you can see right where it would have been. He even managed to reconquer territories north of the Danube. Again, he was doing this from his base in Vidin originally. Now, in response to his difficult position, Basil II decided that the best way to retaliate against Samuel was to turn to his older brother, Aaron. Now, Basil II, in a move which can only be described as Byzantine, managed to convince Aaron to rebel against his younger brother in in by offering him the hand of his sister in marriage, an alliance, which obviously, obviously comes with that, and to rule uh, the remaining Bulgarian territories. So, Aaron is offered this, this sweet deal by Basil II. I'll give you all these things, just rebel against your brother. So Basil II agreed. Everything seemed great. Aaron, everyone agreed. So it seemed like the plan was a go. So he, uh, so Basil II sends over his sister, except that he does not send his sister. In fact, he sends the wife of a Byzantine nobleman claiming that she is the sister of Basil II. Uh, it's a pretty underhanded move and a bit odd. You know, you arrange this thing, okay, you're going to marry my sister and everything, and you send someone else in her place and just hope no one notices. Well, they, he noticed, and uh, that doesn't exactly work out. But amazingly, the negotiations continue, even after Aaron figures out that Basil sent this fake bride his way. So evidently, both Aaron and Basil II really, really needed each other, enough that they're not going to let this betrayal end their attempt for an alliance. But, unfortunately for them, Samuel was not quite as trusting as his brother. His spies uncovered Aaron's plots, and in June of 976, he acted swiftly. Aaron and all but one of his sons, Ivan Vladislav, his oldest, are killed. Samuel's son, Gavriel Radomir, wouldn't allow his cousin to be killed, so that's how Ivan Vladislav was saved. Samuel's son said, no, this, this is my cousin, uh, he's your nephew, please don't kill him. But Aaron and the rest of his family are gone. So now at this point, Samuel's control over Bulgaria is unquestioned. Uh, you know, Roman, obviously he's a eunuch, he can't have children, he has no reason to challenge Samuel. He's standing alone. There are no more claimants to the throne. And now this is pretty remarkable when you consider kind of how quickly this went, how quickly Samuel went from being the son of a prominent boyar, a prominent nobleman, 
to being the unquestioned leader of what remained of Bulgaria. It's all happened within a decade. Now, if the Byzantines had been able to solidify new dynasties this quickly, well, let's say things would have worked out quite differently for them. Okay, so getting back to 977, when the Roman returns to Bulgaria. So after being crowned Tsar in Vidin, where Samuel was, Roman essentially focuses on the church. Again, he's a eunuch. He doesn't have some great military career behind him. He decides that, okay, he's just going to think about the church and try to run the church and allow Samuel to do everything else. So at this point, Samuel prepares yet another series of attacks against the Byzantines. Now, these attacks are primarily focused on Greece, with the critical fortress of Larissa of particular interest. You can see everything on the map attached to this episode and on the website. So, from 977 onward, Samuel attacks every single spring. He is relentless. By 980, the defenders are using the tactics of surrendering until the harvest can be brought in. Essentially by saying, just just kidding, and going back to resisting some wheels. So what they're doing is they say, oh, you're here, we surrender. Some wheels are, great, you give up. And then right when some wheels not paying attention, they get all the food, they harvest everything, harvest everything, clock the gates and say, we're just kidding, we don't surrender. You can imagine this is very aggravating for some wheel. So some wheel goes right on besieging the city year after year and eventually kind of catches on to their tricks. So he starts using scorched earth tactics. He destroys the crops around the region. Well, finally, after three more years of general famine, the population of Larissa is at the point of starvation and surrenders in 986. The women and children are sold as slaves and brought into Bulgaria, while the men are forced into the Bulgarian army. You can imagine after this many years and the tricks and the tactics that no one on either side is particularly willing to be merciful. Now, Basil II, let's just put it this way, does not take this news well. In fact, it inspires him to change his life. Now, I don't know a lot about him before this, but I'll quote Runciman's description of his transformation because it's just too good to leave out. Quote, He was now aged 27. Hitherto, Basil had been gay and dissipated and idle. Henceforth, he threw all that aside and schooled himself into a state of relentless aestheticism, unrivaled in Byzantium, save amongst the holiest saints. He hardened his body to welcome discomfort, and his mind to distrust, culture. Henceforth, his energy was unflagging. He thought nothing of campaigning at seasons when armies usually repose in winter quarters. He was unmoved by horrors or by pity. He became a terrible figure chaste and severe, eating and sleeping sparsely, clad in unrelieved dark garments, never even wearing the purple cloak nor the diadem on his head. He concentrated on one thing only, the establishment and consolidation of his own personal power as emperor for the harmony of the empire. Tsar Samuel, a Bulgarian noble or a Bulgarian rebel in the emperor's eyes, might well fear such an adversary for all his own boldness and ruthlessness. But as yet, the change brought no result. The emperor was young and untried. End quote. So this new man, this new emperor Basil II, well, he decided to take pressure off of Greece by striking at the heart of Samuel's state with 30,000 soldiers. 
The blow came to Serdica, modern Sofia, in 986, the same year Samuel took Larissa. Now, a quick note, as I mentioned, the city is named Sofia on many of the maps from the period, but I'm going to call it Serdica because it's more or less called Serdica for another hundred ye- or 400 years in the narrative. So if you look at some of the maps, you might see Sofia labeled, but they mean Serdica. So despite the fierceness of this sort of new and improved Basil II, the siege is a total failure. Repeated Bulgarian raids cause havoc amongst the attackers, and after 20 days, the Bulgarians manage to set the Byzantine siege equipment on fire, and the siege is more or less over. Just at this moment, Samuel was marching at the head of an army still flush with victory after taking Larissa. So he knows that Basil has failed at Serdica, and he's heading in to try to deliver a killing blow. Basil II has begun to retreat. He's pushed both by his own failures and the fact that his rear guard, along with their commander, had already withdrawn to Philippopolis, modern Plovdiv, leading Basil to believe that perhaps this commander was heading to Constantinople to take the throne for himself. Again, Basil had many plots against him, and so he, well, he had reason to be a bit paranoid. So it was in Basil's interest to get home as quickly as possible. So the Byzantines turn around to do just that. But Samuel had already laid a trap in a mountain pass called the Gates of Trajan, right about where the modern town of Mirovo is. So if you're, you know, you can look it up on Google Maps if you like, or, or, you know, if you're ever driving on the Thracian Highway, which connects Sofia to Plovdiv, it's a town about 60 kilometers or 40 minutes into the journey going from Sofia to Plovdiv. You pass right through these kind of hilly, low mountains on the way. So this is, if you've driven that, uh, that way, you'll be able to imagine just where we're talking about. So as the Byzantine camps camped, the rumors swirled around the camp that the Bulgarians were nearby, that the Bulgarians were planning an attack. And to make matters worse, just at this moment, a brilliant meteor illuminated the sky, further striking terror into the hearts of the Byzantine soldiers. It was Halley's Comet, of all things. Now the next morning, As the army moved through the gates of Trajan, the Bulgarians, as they'd done so many times before, swept down from the mountains. The results, also as before, were predictable, a slaughter. The emperor himself just barely managed to escape with the help of the tremendous exertions of his Varangian guard. Only those fierce Viking warriors, fanatically devoted to their emperor, could save him. The majority of the rest of his 30,000 soldiers fell where they stood. Even the imperial baggage and insignia were captured. As one Byzantine poet who witnessed the battle put it in his poem titled To the Woe of the Romans in the Bulgarian Defile, quote, The Danube took the crown of Rome. The same poet also wrote of Halley's Comet and of Samuel. There he said, quote, Above the comet scorched the sky, below the comet burns the west. For the next three years, as Basil dealt with rebellions at home inspired by his failures abroad, Samuel went further on the offensive. Now, either at this moment or ten years earlier, as I mentioned, it's always a bit ambiguous, Samuel actually recaptures the old capitals of Pliska and Preslav, bringing his state once again to the coast of the Black Sea. He also attacked deep into Greece 
reaching as far as Thebes and Corinth. The Byzantine subjects of the Peloponnesus watched in horror as he retook the city of Dyrrhachium, Marandures in Albania on the Adriatic Sea, and just constantly put more and more and more pressure on the south. And so Bulgaria was once again on the three seas, as it had been in the time of Simeon. Basil tried one of his classic tactics. He mounted a joint attack with the Serbs. However, the Serb envoys were captured by Arab pirates and never made it to Constantinople, and so there was no joint attack. By 991, Basil II had resolved both his rebellions and was once again able to turn his full attention to the Bulgarians. You recall it's always true. Whenever the Bulgarians can make great gains, at some point, the full sort of eye of Byzantium, the full might of Byzantium, will turn their way. And we come again to this time. And so we begin a four-year campaign that sadly we don't know a lot about. But what we do know is that in the first year of this campaign, Roman is captured in battle and spends the rest of his life in a Byzantine prison again. We also know that the Byzantine army recaptured some fortresses, but no decisive battles occurred until 995. That's why we don't know much about this. You'll recall almost all of our, uh, all of our information at this point still comes from Byzantine sources. And without a decisive battle to write about, well, they don't have much to say. But in 995, Basil II was forced to rush east to combat yet another Arab invasion of Anatolia. And in his absence, Samuel quickly recaptures much of what he had lost over the last four years. Now, this recapture culminates in the Battle of Thessalonica. Now, the emperor had left an Armenian prince named Gregory in charge of the defense of the city. Now, this is very ironic because, in fact, Samuel and Gregory are relatives. Samuel's grandfather, Ashot II, was also Gregory's great uncle. Now, that fact isn't super relevant to the story, but it's not mentioned in any of the sources. And when I did a bit of digging, sort of a bit of digging and found this out, I found it really, really interesting that these guys are you know, basically cousins and they're on either side of this battle fighting for foreign states. Although at this point, obviously, some wheel is thoroughly you know, Bulgarianized, but still. So anyways, Gregory, he had previously ceded his land to the Byzantines in exchange for titles and land inside of the empire. You know, bear in mind, Armenia was kind of on the border with the Arabs and was facing repeated invasions both by the Byzantines and the Arabs. So if you owned a lot of land there, it was a pretty good idea to, you know, give it up to the Byzantines so they can use it to defend themselves and you go somewhere safe in the empire and enjoy a nice retirement. So that's how he kind of ended up in Byzantine service and how he ended up in charge of defending Thessalonica. Now, remember, this at this time is the second largest city in the Byzantine empire, a very important city. Now, once, once uh, Gregory knew that the emperor and the main theme armies, the main Byzantine armies were gone off in the east, Samuel made his main attack there. Samuel began by sending small detachments towards the city ahead of his main army. It was bait, and, well, Gregory took it. He sent a small force led by his son, Ashot, to drive them back. And Ashot did just that. But he also managed to get drawn into a Bulgarian ambush. The trap shut, and he was taken prisoner. But at the same time, his father Gregory saw what was happening and rushed out to rescue his son. But Gregory was killed along with most of his army. So, 
in, in essence, the, the battle is lost by the love of Gregory for his son, Ashot. And again, there's this tragedy of, you know, this death and capturing between more or less cousins, descendants of this now lost Armenian royal family. Another interesting side note, I decided to look it up. This is now the 20th of the 43 named battles, which will happen eventually between the Bulgarians and the Byzantines throughout the history of the first two Bulgarian empires. So we're a little over halfway through all the Byzantine-Bulgarian battles. You know, think about all the time we spent on these battles and you'll realize just how many wars have occurred and will occur. So even after this though, even after these captures, the walls of the city are very formidable and Samuel decides to actually skip the rest of the city, proceed south and raid Greece. After he's reached as far south as Corinth, he receives word that a Byzantine army under the command of one of their most able generals, Nikoforos Oranos, was on the march. So Samuel has to quickly turn around and rush north to stop this army. And, sadly, I've got to leave it there for this week. So Samuel is uh, sort of experiencing some inspiring successes, and the devastation of the invasions of Sviatoslav and the Byzantines seem to be receding into the past. You know, the, the Bulgarian Empire is growing again. They're having some great victories against the Byzantines. So next time we're going to hear about the second half of Samuel's reign, and we'll see how it all comes crashing down. This episode was produced by Martin Christoph and Lance Nelson. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven, and the story's written by me, Eric Halsey. Be sure to like us on Facebook and leave us a review on iTunes. Also, you can now listen to us directly on SoundCloud, so give that a go. Feel free to donate with the PayPal button on the website, also which will be upgraded soon. Lastly, if you'd like to hear more about Bulgaria today, check out the Bulgarian Now podcast, created by the aforementioned Mr. Nelson. You can even give, give me a listen with the, my audio tour of Sofia and some discussions I'm a part of discussing the history today, this, what's happening in Sofia right now, all kinds of great stuff. So do subscribe there. Also, very soon I'll be finished making a special three-part series on the history of Bonsko for the premium version of the Bonsko app. So check that out in the App Store and give that a listen. In the meantime, uspech, or in English, good luck.